All right, go ahead and open up to John 16. John 16. This morning we're going to be looking at everlasting joy. Um, In the late 1300s, early 1400s, there was this man um, who was born um, in and around what we know as the Czech Republic. And because he was born poor, he made a decision that he would go into the priesthood. Not because of some religious conviction, but simply for a better livelihood. Um, In that period of time, the priests were more well-educated. They were well taken care of. Sometimes not in the best of ways. Right? It wasn't the most pure of ways, but that was his decision, right? to go into the priesthood so he could have a better livelihood. So he would not have to go through the same circumstances that um, his family had went through uh, before him. His name was John Huss. And John Huss, eventually, after working up the ranks, had even become a priest of Europe's most popular church at the time, Bethlehem Church in Prague. And it was during that time that he came across the teachings of one of his contemporaries named John Wycliffe. And John Wycliffe was known, is known now, for being um, a Bible guy. His teachings were on the purity of Scripture, uh, the inerrancy of Scripture, the, the sufficiency of Scripture, just the beauty of the Bible. And it was through those teachings that John Huss, surprisingly, even after being the priest of Europe's most popular church, found the Scripture, the beauty of Scripture, and the true study of Scripture. He wasn't just putting out church rules anymore. He wasn't just simply following the status quo. He discovered the Word of God. And in discovering the Word of God, he actually met Christ. So yes, it is believed that Huss had spent his early career becoming one of the most popular priests in the church in there in Europe without even being a Christian. And what happened is, is when he discovered the Scripture and when he trusted in Christ, his life changed radically. His teachings changed radically, so much so that he was absolutely hated by the church. Not his church, but the church in Rome. He became one of the greatest Bible teachers of his time. He became a pillar of the early Reformation. Remember, the the Protestant Reformation Um, we know, kicked off with Martin Luther in the 1500s. So we're talking 100 years before Martin Luther ever stepped onto the scene. John Huss was preaching the clarity and the sufficiency of Scripture. And because of that, he was labeled a heretic and, and he was arrested. 
And while he was in prison, this is one of the, the comments that he made about the scripture. Desiring to hold, believe, and assert whatever is contained in it, the Bible, as long as I have breath in me. And, and again, it was because of his belief in the scripture and because of his trusting in Christ, he was actually labeled a heretic by his overseers in the church. And while he was imprisoned, this was his statement. I appeal to Jesus Christ, the only judge who is almighty and completely just. In his hands, I plead my cause, not on the basis of false witness and erring counsels, but on the truth and justice. And on July 6, 1415, Huss was taken into the main cathedral there. He was dressed in his priestly garments, and then he was stripped of them one by one. And they carried him out into the city center and tied him to a post. And it said that he prayed out loud so that all could hear. And this was his prayer. Lord Jesus, it is for thee that I patiently endure this cruel death. I pray thee to have mercy on my enemies. And after his prayer, they stacked woods around him sticks, and they set him ablaze. He was being burned alive. And as he was burning, he was not screaming in agony. It's recorded that he was heard singing the Psalms. The question is, how can one individual endure such pain, such suffering, such sorrow. Only Jesus. Only the hope and the joy found in Jesus. It's pretty quiet in here right now. And you're probably thinking, you said we're going to talk about everlasting joy and we just talked about a man being burned alive. Huss is just a small sample of men and women who have been brutally murdered for their stance on Jesus and his word. The main idea for the text we will be in this morning is this. That the only source of, only true source of everlasting joy is in the finished work of Jesus. I want to pray for us, and we will begin to unpack what everlasting joy truly is. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning as we begin to dive into your word, may we be filled with the very same spirit that filled that brother, John Huss, who several years ago, Gave everything, even unto death, because his belief in you and your word. And may we not only just say we believe the Bible, but let it truly grip every 
fiber of our being. That we believe its truth, that, that we hold fast to its truth, that it would be truly the guide for every ounce of our lives. So that we would be radically changed by it. And in its changing us, it would change our hearts. So that we would no longer seek after things that give us only temporary happiness and joy. But that we would seek for true joy that can only be found in the work of Jesus on the cross in our place for our sin. And may we, as we are changed by the beauty and the sufficiency of the Bible and its message, live lives that are absolutely unusual to the world. So this morning, God, we're asking that you speak to us through your word. God, I'm asking that it would not be my words that are this morning that are being said, but God, you would speak in and through your Holy Spirit through my lips. The words, the message, the, the truth that we all, including myself, desperately need to hear this morning. That all of the distractions of our lives will simply be put on the side burners for just a few moments as we gaze upon the absolute Perfect, beautiful, conquering, victorious work of Jesus on the cross. And that in his work we would find true, lasting joy. So God, may you remove the blinders from our eyes, the covers from our ears, the hardness of our hearts. And may we receive truly the words of life. It is in the name of our victorious King, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Starting off as we unpack this idea that the only true source of everlasting joy is in the finished work of Jesus, we start in verse 16 and following, where we see that sorrow turns to joy. We're going to kind of bounce around with these verses a little bit to clearly show the path and the train of thought. To start, we're actually not going to start in verse 16 of chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 20, where we see this. Jesus talking to the disciples again. He's in what we know is the farewell discourse. He's preparing them for his death, which is only a few hours away at this moment. This is his last time sitting with his disciples before his death, and he's preparing them for what's to come. And he tells them this. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep. And lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Now, for most of us, when we think of joy, we probably don't associate that with suffering. We probably don't connect it with pain and sorrow. But in, in Jesus' 
farewell discourse, in these last few moments with his disciples, he is preparing them for his death. And in so doing, he's explaining to them what's about to take place. You're going to receive joy, but first you're going to weep and you're going to lament. And in your sorrow, in your greatest moments of affliction, the world is going to rejoice. Why? Now we go back to verse 16. Jesus says this. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you were asking yourselves? What I mean by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Jesus is referring to his death, right? He knows it's coming. Judas has already betrayed him. And the time is quickly approaching when he will be brutally murdered for crimes he never committed. And when that happens, the disciples and Jesus' true followers, they will weep and they will lament and they will be absolutely distraught because the one that they had surrendered their lives to, the one that they had given up their careers for, the one that they had left their homes to pursue and to follow is about to leave. And in their defense, they probably thought when they signed on for this that this was going to be the rest of their lives. But here it is only three years later, and now he's coming to them and he's saying, oh, by the way, I'm checking out. I'm leaving. And the way that I'm leaving is absolutely brutal. And back in chapter 15, he said, and just in case you thought that it was only me that they're going to come after, remember this, that if they hated me, they're going to hate you as well. And so their lives will be filled with sorrow and weeping. And while that's taking place, the world's going to rejoice. But the good news is, is that script will flip pretty quickly. They don't understand exactly what's about to take place. They're hearing like he's about to die, but they're not understanding how it's going to unfold. But Jesus, in his all-knowing power, in his omniscience, in his sovereignty, knows exactly what's going to take place. He knows the moments, how they will happen. He knows the people who will be involved. He knows the pain he will endure. And just as a side note, when I, when I say he knows the pain he is about to endure, our tendency is to at the pain of the cross, right? The pain of um, the beating, the pain of the crown of thorns, the, the lashes, the nails piercing his hands and his feet, the spear piercing his side. And that's where we have a tendency to get hung up, right? Because that sounds extremely painful, right? But that's not the pain. That's not the pain that, that exemplifies the meaning and the message of the cross. The pain is in the fact that Jesus himself is about to bear the wrath of God meant for sin for all of his people for all of time. 
And Jesus is knowing this and he's preparing them, but he's letting them understand that it's only going to happen for a moment. You're only going to weep and you're only going to lament for just a brief moment. And so he goes into verse 22 and he begins to use this analogy of childbirth. Check that, verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has some sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world. And in verse 22 he says, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. One of the effects of the fall, so when Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden and they sinned against God, one of the effects of the fall is pain and childbirth. Now, it's clear. We have a lot of people who know exactly what pregnancies are like and the effects of childbirth. Pregnancy can be quite devastating. I know in our case, for Allison, it was rough. She was sick for nine months, all day, every day. Um probably don't know this, but when we had Sophie, she almost died. We didn't know that at the time. Our doctors kept us kind of oblivious to it, thankfully, um, until after the fact. Um, and that's not to say that hers was the worst, because there are plenty of pains in childbirth. And it's not just childbirth itself, it's the entire pregnancy, right? Morning sickness, discomfort, just you're carrying a person, right? A little human being inside of you. But something drastic happens at the moment of childbirth, right? Like all of the nine months of pain and aggravation and sickness and discomfort just kind of goes away at the moment you see and hold and hear your little baby. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's like, listen, it's It's going to be rough. But that pain will give way to joy. See, the pain that they are going to endure, it's only going to be momentary because Jesus' time in the grave is only short and temporary. Right? He's he's been betrayed by Judas, and that's about to come to fruition here in the next Um, couple of chapters, and we'll get to that over the next couple of weeks, but at that, he will then be put on trial for crimes he's very innocent of, and he will be beaten, and he will be mocked, and he will be further tortured, and then he will be brutally murdered. But, as the old preacher S.M. Lockridge said, Sunday's coming. When the grave will be empty, Death will be defeated. The dead will be raised to life. And all of that pain and all of that sorrow and those moments of weeping and lament and mourning will turn to joy and rejoicing. And they will be filled with everlasting joy. 
And here's what I want you to get. That there is no greater joy than following Jesus. There will be plenty of difficult days. There will be plenty of moments of pain and sorrow and trials. When things just are not going the way we hoped. We get a bad diagnosis. We get bad news. Unexpected, heart-breaking, gut-wrenching news. Work's just not going the way it should. Family life's just not going the way we had always dreamed and hoped it would. People I thought that loved me turned to hate me and reject me. And on and on and on it goes. But I want you to be reminded of what David says in Psalm 30. He says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up. And have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. So sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is for but a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. And weeping may tarry for the night. But here it is, joy comes with the morning. Church, joy comes in the morning. And here's what I do know. I'll give you something I don't know and then I'll give you something I do know. What I don't know is exactly what each and every one of you are going through at all times. But what I do know, joy comes in the morning. And as hard as that is to hear and believe and to trust in, we hear it in Scripture and we believe the Bible and we believe the Bible to be God's Word. And God never fails. Which means God's word never fails. And his promises are sure. So don't be captive by what's happening now. Don't be chained by the circumstances that you're going through. Don't think that the sorrow will never end. For the child of God, the sorrow will certainly end. It will fade. It may not happen in this lifetime, and I don't want you to hear me say that it's all going to be roses at some point in this life, because it may not. But there will be a day where we stand face to face with the sovereign creator of all things. And if we have put our faith and our trust in Christ in this life, 
We will gaze at the sovereign king of the universe and he will say, welcome home. Come in. Enjoy. Let's worship. And all of the pain and all of the sorrow and all of the suffering and all the trials and the tribulations and the thorns and the thistles that we will have to fight through. All of those things will fade and we will stand before the glory of the Lord. And remember in the main idea I said that the only source, true source of everlasting joy is in the finished work of Jesus. It's because of Jesus' work. That we can rest in the promises of God. It's because of Jesus' work that we can know that sorrow only is momentary. That joy comes in the morning. So I want you to hear this. That joy comes through the victory. That the joy that comes through the victory of Jesus is absolutely untouchable. Paul writes in Romans, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It's Christ Jesus who died. And more than that, who was raised. And who is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And he says all of that to go on later in chapter 8 verse 37. To say no we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So when he tells us that joy comes in the morning. I'm here to tell you that is exactly what happens. Look at verses 23 and 24. He tells them in that day. You will ask nothing of me. So truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. See, true Lasting joy comes only from the Father through the work of Jesus. He says repeatedly, in my name. In my name. And I want you to know this. That nothing in this world can satisfy. And we try to, right? We, we try to fill voids with everything under the sun. Gadgets, people, money, prestige, you name it. We try to find joy in all of these other things. And what typically happens, right? If I only had this, I'd be happy. And we work for that, right? And then we get it. Then what happens? We might be happy for a little bit, but then ultimately we're in the same place. See, true joy, true satisfaction, true happiness cannot come from anything other than Christ. And so two things I want you to see here. First, that Christians are to be joy-filled. There are no joyless Christians. Stop trying to fill your life with happiness and joy and find meaning and purpose from anything other than Christ. You will be unhappy. You will be broken. You will be confused. But not if you trust Christ. You're still going to face the hardships. You're still going to face the trials. 
the anxieties of life. But you also have the promise that joy comes in the morning. Joy doesn't come in the morning when you seek after all these other things. It only comes from Christ. So find rest in Him and Him alone. And the second is that everlasting joy comes in complete surrender to Jesus and living in joyful obedience to His call on your life. I'll say that again. Everlasting joy comes in complete surrender to Jesus and living in joyful obedience to his call on your life. What does God want you to do? Sounds familiar, right? It's coming from last week. What does God want you to do? What is God trying to do, wanting to do in and through you right now? And just because of your flesh, because of your selfishness, because of your lack of faith, you're just not doing it. That's to me too. What is it? Because I think so often we completely forget this great point. The only reason we're existing is for the purposes of God. God didn't create you. God didn't create me. God didn't save you. God didn't save me so that I could just enjoy life. God created you and God saves you to do his work, to give him glory. And in giving him glory, you will find joy. You've heard it probably a hundred or so times in the last eight and a half years, probably more than that, but you're going to hear it again. John Piper says that God is most glorified in us, we're most satisfied in him. Satisfied in him. Not in any other thing. But in him. So when my world is crumbling, if I have Jesus, that's enough. And God is glorified. Listen to this quote from Billy Sunday. He says, if you have no joy, there's a leak in your Christianity somewhere. In other words, you don't know Jesus. And here's what I don't want you to hear, okay? Here's what I don't want you to think. I don't want you to think I'm saying, and, and hopefully I've, I've reiterated this quite enough over the years, but I want you to hear it once more, just in case. I'm not saying that if you trust Jesus, life's going to be easy. I'm actually telling you the opposite. If you trust Jesus, life is probably going to get really hard. And in some cases, you will think you're living in earthly hell. But... Joy comes in the morning. It's worth it. I want you to think of Paul. Right? My Wednesday night crew heard this the other night, but I'm going to hear it again. Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, says this. Starting in verse 7. It says, but whatever gain I had... I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. 
in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God from God that depends on faith. Why? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, let's unpack that for a second. Verse 7, whatever gain I had, I had, I counted as loss. What gains? He tells us actually in the verses before that, but just the short side of that is Paul had everything in terms of worldly standards. He was one of the up-and-coming, most powerful leaders in the Jewish ranks. He had money, prestige, power, fame. According to the law, he says he was blameless. According to zeal, we know that Paul was the primary leader in the destruction of the Christian church. Meaning his job was to kill Christians, to snuff out those who were followers of Christ. From the right lineage of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. He said, but whatever gain I had loss, I counted it as loss. Why? For the sake of Christ. Now, it's pretty interesting coming from a guy whose natural job was to destroy Christians. Indeed, I counted everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because what happened? The anti-Christian terrorist met Jesus and he became the greatest missionary outside of Jesus to ever walk the face of this earth. That's what meeting Jesus does. It radically changes our lives. And here Paul is saying, and this is towards the end of his life, right, where he had been through quite a lot. He had become poor, so he had lost all his fame, he had lost all of his power, and he traveled. He was homeless pretty much, and he traveled preaching and planting churches, starting churches and building churches. He had been stoned, he had been imprisoned. He had been attempted, people had attempted to murder him, and here he's saying, I had counted everything as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake. I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. In the Greek, that means dung. I have counted them as nothing in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. He knew that it wasn't in his own works that he was counted as righteous. It was simply that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Why? And, and this is beautiful. See, he's not saying so that I may gain earthly riches or I may gain earthly stature or I may gain all these things. He just gave all of that up. Like the typical mainline gospel that we hear today is the opposite of this. So I gave all of that up. Why? I trusted in Christ. Why? So that I may get more. No, he says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings. 
even becoming like him in his death, so that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's aim was to become like Christ in his death, giving everything for the sake of God. And so what we need to know is this, that when we seek satisfaction and happiness in anything other than Jesus Christ, we are robbing our souls of everlasting joy. We try to fill our lives with things that we think will bring us joy when in fact we're actually robbing ourselves of joy. Because true lasting joy only comes from Jesus. And he then is the point and the Epitome of point number two, the source of everlasting joy. Look at verses 25 and following. Jesus says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. And in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And his disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figures of speech. Now we know that you know all things. Like they should have gotten this by this point, right? And we believe that you come from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And he says in verse 33, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus has been primarily referring to his death, but he's also referring to his ascension. See, in his death, he will be gone for three days. Three days they will weep and they will lament and they will mourn and they will be absolutely distraught because their leader, their, their, what they thought was the Messiah is going to be gone. And they're thinking it probably to themselves, if he's the Messiah, if he's God in the flesh, why is he dead? But those three days are going to be followed by rejoicing. But he's also referring to his ascension, that time where he leaves them again. See, the period after his ascension to his return is quite longer than three days. And he's telling them, listen, you're going to face trials. You're going to face tribulations. we do what do we do when everything is falling apart what do we do when life is crumbling we hold fast to hope that we find in the word of God to the promises of God and the promise that he's coming again Remember last week we looked at Revelation 7 briefly that, that, that through the leading of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit would lead us to streams of living water. And then we looked to the very end in Revelation 22 how he will actually do that. He will lead us to rivers of life. 
And so in the meantime, in this life, in, in this moment that we have where we struggle and we fight and we, and, we, and we try to pursue Christ and everything seems to be crumbling and falling apart and things keep pressing in on us, what do we do? How do we hold on? What is our source of everlasting joy in those moments? It's the same as it always has been and it will be until he returns and it's Jesus. Verse 35 again says this. Not 35. There's only 33. 33. That was a misprint in my notes. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have come, overcome the world. Jesus is the ultimate overcomer. He stared death in the face and he bore God's wrath for your sin and mine. And then he died. At the hands of a just God so that we could escape death. And then God glorified him because he had sacrificed and surrendered himself to the perfect plans of the Father. In other words, Jesus took on the greatest pain in history so his people could be reconciled to God and be filled with everlasting joy. Jesus died so that you and I do not have to. And I think so often we think of death and we think of how morbid it is, but we forget that the worst part of death is if we die without Christ, we are separated from him eternally. Like We, we put all these analogies to it that, it's, that hell is going to be this terrible place. It's going to be full of fire and brimstone and smells like suffer and you're going to hear weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's not what makes hell bad. What makes hell bad is that Jesus is not there. And he's saying, I stared that in the face and I defeated it. So church, we need to understand that Jesus has already paid the greatest price on our behalf. And in so doing, he gives us two great gifts that we see in these verses. The first is peace. Peace. What do we mean by peace? Peace to know that our sin has been atoned for. Romans 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we can't downplay our sin. We must see sin for what it truly is, is it's falling short of the glory of God. You put yourself up against the perfect, holy, righteous, sovereign God of the universe and see how well you stack up. You don't. I don't. And there's nothing good within me. And there's no way that I could make myself come to God because of the filth and the wretchedness of the sin that's within me. And Christ, knowing me and loving me before the foundation of the world, demonstrates his own love for us. And that while we were still sinners, and you need to hear that, you need to pay attention to that. While we were still sinners, Christ died. How many of us were there when Jesus gave his life on the cross? 
So how in the world could God, could he say that God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died? That's because God knew you. God knew me. He knew your sin. He knew my sin way before we ever existed. And Jesus took your mess and he took my mess onto the cross and he bore the wrath of God that was meant for every one of us. And in so doing, he gives us peace. He washes away our sin and he takes our sin and he casts it as far as the east is from the west. And he replaces it with his own perfect, beautiful, spotless righteousness. Now, why is that good news? It's good news because we no longer have to strive to earn God's love and God's favor. We're no longer trying to attempt to earn God's salvation. No, instead, we completely trust in Jesus because he has already accomplished it for us. And all he's saying is, believe in me, trust in me, and I will give you life. And in that assurance of knowing that Jesus has already done this great work for me, I have now the ability and the freedom to live in joyful obedience to the Savior of my soul. How condemning, how hard would it be if I lived every moment of every day not knowing if it was enough? That's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus has died in our place for our sins to set us free to live for him and his glory. So we don't work to attain salvation. We don't work to attain righteousness of our own because... Can't. Isaiah says that our righteousness is as filthy rags, but we work because we have already received it in the death and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So he gives us peace, but he also gives us joy, supreme, everlasting joy. And it comes only in knowing Jesus and being known by him. Again, Jesus knew me. He knew my sin. Not just the sin that everybody else knows that I'll actually be willing to share. No, he knows the very depths, the cracks, the crevices of my heart. All the details. All the dirt. And he still died for me. And he did that for you. And he chose to die in my place. So. Therefore. Out of. Greatest gratitude. Of the work of Jesus. As savior and overcomer. We live for him. See because. Jesus overcame. We overcome and we press on by his grace and for his glory, even unto death. Revelation 12, 11. And they have conquered him. Satan. By the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Did you hear that? They conquered him. They conquered Satan. How? First, by the blood of the Lamb. 
And then by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Is that us? Do we love him even unto death? Now, that might not necessarily mean our lives are physically taken from us today or tomorrow. But do we love him more than all of the other things? The accolades, the toys, the power, the money, the prestige, our families. Is Jesus all to us? And I want you to just actually ponder on that this week. Something that I've been struggling with mightily over the last couple of weeks. Is Jesus everything to me? Is Jesus everything? The temptation is for us to answer that. Of course he is. But if he was, wouldn't our lives reflect that? You know what I see when I look at my life? I look at the business of my schedule and I see like a lot of other things being more to me than Jesus. My family. And the activities that we endure. My job. What should our lives look like? I want you to flip to Romans chapter 12. We're going to. We're going to motor through Romans 12, okay? Like high speed. Romans 12. You got it up there, Paul? Romans 12. Paul, little background. You need to hear this, okay, to understand the, the scope of what he's saying. So Romans, Paul has laid out up to this point how terrible we are. Because of our sin, how hopeless we are because of our sin, but how great Christ is that he would die to save us from our sin just because of his sheer goodness. And that God has set us apart to do his work, his way. And at the end of chapter 11, after unpacking all of that, Paul breaks into a little like doxology, a little, a little moment of praise. And he says this. Oh, verse 33 of chapter 11. You might not have that, Paul, and that's okay. Just hear. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. 
How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And so he immediately turns his attention back to the church. He's right to the church at Rome, and this is what he tells them. Because of your horrible nature of sin, which we all have, and because of the greatness of Christ that redeems us from sin... I appeal to you then, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Are our lives a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God? Are we worshiping him with every moment of every day? He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, which is the hearing of the gospel. The knowing that Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. That one hits me. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion of our faith, if service in serving, if one who teaches in his teaching, to the one who exhorts in his exhortation, to the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor, that is hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Remember, joy comes in the morning. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Hmm. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. No one. There is no asterisk there. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live Peaceably with all, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. That's a good thing. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And we can go on and on, but I hope that you get the point by now. So we need to ask ourselves, does my life look like that? Have I given everything to sacrificially serve and worship the Lord? Because he gave everything to sacrificially die for me. Have I laid myself completely down? Have I listened to the words of Jesus where he says, if you would follow me, deny yourself daily and take up your cross and follow me. Does my life look like that? Is my life 
a picture of sacrificial worship to the glorious king of the universe? Am I truly living as a reflection of the glories of God? See, as the people of God, our lives are to be marked by everlasting joy. Why? Because of the finished work of Jesus. And I want to tell you this morning that if you're here and you have never surrendered your life to Jesus for salvation, and you want to know true joy, everlasting joy, turn to Him. Come to Jesus and be saved. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Our Father, may you wreck us today. May we no longer be a people who just stamp Christian on our shirts and live like the world. But let us be truly transformed by the renewal of our mind, by the hearing of the gospel, so that we will live life serving the Lord, sacrificially giving ourselves to the cause of God and your kingdom. And may you save those here who have never truly trusted in you. And may you radically transform the lives of everyone here. So that we will live by your grace and for your glory. And experience true everlasting joy as we submit gratefully to your glorious leading. In Christ's magnificent name that we pray. Amen.